Um, Chris did his MA and his uh, BA at Queen's University, his PhD at Brandeis University. But for most of his career, he's been at the uh, State University of New York, where he's uh, now director of the Centre for the Study of Canada uh, and also the Institute of Quebec Studies. Uh, he's the uh, author of uh, several books and many articles. Uh, and um, his uh, most recent projects, both of which are due to be published this year, are a special issue of the American Review of Canadian Studies on Quebec and the World, please say I've got an article in, uh, and also uh, just come out later this year, uh, edited with uh, Michael Hawes, <coughs> on Canadian foreign policy in a unipolar world. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Chris. Very much look forward to your review. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I will say that, uh, I'm, you know, it's one thing for Justin Trudeau to get confused with his father, uh, Pierre, but I'd be more concerned if he were getting confused with Justin Bieber. Source <laughs> <laughs> of great concern. Um, although I have a person who works with me in my office as our secretary, and she emphatically told me she is north of 50, that it's okay to like Justin Bieber. I said, when is it? Then? So I, I missed the boat on that one somehow. So anyhow. Um, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear me in the back, Mike? Okay, great, thanks. Um, it's a distinct pleasure to once again be at the University College London Institute, the study of the Americas, to join you for a conversation on Canada. Um, I want to extend to my friend and colleague a very warm thank you, Tony, for allowing me to be with you tonight. Um, when he approached me and asked if I'd be interested in delivering the annual Canada lecture, as it were, um, we kicked around a variety of ideas and settled on the theme of Justin Trudeau 100 days in. <coughs> uh, not particularly original, um, but it seemed logical enough because in some ways it was effectively designed uh, to build, if you will, on comments that were delivered here in October of 2015, um, shortly about a week after the election. Um, a panel that was comprised of Jocelyn Letourneau from the University uh, Université Laval um, in Quebec City, Michael Hawes, the Executive Director of Fulbright Canada, and myself, where we talked about this striking, and as Tony rightly points out, surprise victory um, by the <coughs> Liberal Party of Canada and Mr. Trudeau in the 43rd election held on the 19th of October. As I prepared my remarks for tonight's event, I was tempted, um, given recent political developments in the country on Canada's southern border, to build this talk as the quote, yes, we like government, no, we won't engage directly with ISIS, please bring on more free trade, yes, we do like Muslim political refugees, and no, we don't need a wall today or ever talk. But then I thought, such a title might prove to invite comparative examinations of Mr. Trudeau and another less thoughtful, but nonetheless striking figure in the United States, a figure who, for the time being, remains in search of power. Um, such a title or an approach, I'm convinced, would, apart from being purposely glib, deflect attention from what has truly been an interesting recent period, chock full of new developments, one might say, in Canadian politics, as spearheaded by Prime Minister Trudeau. So tonight, and I'd encourage you 
Um, this is meant as a conversation. Um, so feel free to raise your hand and ask uh, or interject and clarify at any point you'd like to. Um, I'll begin tonight with a few comments about Mr. Trudeau's electoral victory last fall, just to set the context, if you will. And then I'll turn to talk about some of the more important, significant policy actions that he has undertaken in his first 100 days in office. And then I'll turn ultimately to conclude and look at beyond 100 days, uh, essentially commenting on some of his most outstanding challenges over the longer horizon. So the election result of October the 19th last year, to an astonished Canada, Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal Party captured 184 of the 338 seats in the Canadian House of Commons. This was a startling for those of you, whether you were here last October or you're simply reading the newspaper or you've studied this in a more formative way, the truth is it was a stunning electoral victory because going into that campaign, um, and it was an interesting campaign, um, it was over the course of 11 weeks, 79 days, if I get that correct, about, well, that'd be more than 11 weeks, um, a touch more than 11 weeks. Um, <coughs> what happened uh, was surprising because the Conservatives uh, party under then Prime Minister Stephen Harper opted to call the election thinking, you know, public opinion polls were such that they thought they would be able to uh, emerge, if not with a majority government, but to at least have a minority government. And then uh, that changed over time, and it changed fairly dramatically, as we'll talk about very quickly. But when Mr. Trudeau spoke at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal that night, um, it was clear that the Liberals had won. They secured 40% of the votes across Canada. They won seats in all 10 provinces and in all three territories. They captured the majority of the seats in eight of the 10 Canadian provinces and did so when you look at who got what as far as votes go. Um, the Liberal Party did a strikingly um, consistent job of capturing major metropolitan centers because Canada really is, if you talk to um, demographers, they will tell you that Canada is a country of cities. Um, because when you look at Vancouver, and you look at Edmonton, and you look at Calgary, and Winnipeg, and Toronto, and Ottawa, and Quebec City, and Halifax, that's about 81, 82% of Canada's population. It's incredibly large. Um, and in those cities, um, less so, I might add, certainly in Alberta, in the case of Edmonton, and Calgary, the Liberal Party did astonishingly well. It did so well that in the eastern region of Canada, the Maritime Provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Prince Edward Island, all 32 seats went to the Liberals. Um, so a real interesting development. The NDP, the third major party that was contesting the election, and initially public opinion polls showed them not long after Mr. Harper called the election, um, showed them in the lead. They actually dropped, however, and they dropped significantly. They had 95 seats in the Canadian House of Commons going into that election, and they dropped down to 44. Um, in the words of a New York Times columnist, this electoral result represented not simply a stark repudiation of Mr. Harper's government 
an ideological bent, um, a bent and a reputation most often characterized in terms such as secretive, autocratic, non-consultative, non-transparent, and unaccountable, but a new political day and future for Canada. Mr. Trudeau, quote unquote, is different, the Times noted. He is a better match for Canadians' vision of themselves. Peaceable, educated, emotionally stable, and multicultural. And it's been hard to escape the fact that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has captured the world's attention. Be it on magazine covers, in press coverage, um, one of the most telling moments, I'm a Canadian, but I live in the United States for the last 30 years, was, um, and I know it received worldwide press coverage, was when the first Syrian refugees arrived in Toronto. He was not only there to personally greet them and placing winter coats on them, but he said most emphatically, you are home, welcome home. And that just was like, wow, the, a, a lot of, you know, it, that brief statement, I think for a lot of Canadians, summed up the difference in approaches to governance and, and approaches to people. But we also saw that Mr. Trudeau captured attention at the World Economic Forum in Davos, at a G20 summit meeting in Turkey, the climate change talks in Paris, and most recently, um, and I don't know how fully it's been covered because I know you have um, politics of your own, shall we say, with regard to the place and role and future of Britain and the European community. Um, but. Uh, had you been in the United States or Canada in the last week, what was effectively capturing headlines, and I'm sorry, I forgot to bring the New York Times last Friday because it was an extraordinary snapshot that was on the cover, but in Canada's Globe and Mail, this was sort of the picture everybody saw every day when Mr. Trudeau was down for an official state visit in Washington. Um, and that official state visit resulted in a variety of things. Um, I think most people were interested to see who actually showed up for the state dinner that night. The Wall Street, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal showed, uh, put together a list of individuals who were there. You know, uh, Mr. Bieber was not there. Um, <laughs> and I, I was shocked there were no hockey players on the list, which to me is like appalling. I can't, I can't imagine <laughs> who put that list together. But there were some Canadian actors, you know, um, Austin, I mean, Mike Myers was there, um, amongst others. So it was quite an interesting visit. In fact, about two weeks prior to the official state visit, uh, Barack Obama decided to um, uh, uh, fan the flames, one might say a bit, in that um, the Chicago Blackhawks of the National Hockey League, last year's Stanley Cup champions, paid a visit to the White House. And President Obama referenced the fact that this was the third time in the past six years that hockey team had won the Stanley Cup. And being from Chicago, um, said, well, clearly this must have something to do, you know, this is not coincidence that you've won uh, so frequently of late um, with a president in the White House who's also from Chicago. Um, he said, you know, that Stanley Cup thing, he said, you know what, maybe when the Canadian Prime Minister comes, we're just going to leave it in the middle of the room. That made all the headlines across Canada. That was like, you know, that was almost like, well, that, that, those were fighting words, some might say. But he was, he was doing it in jest. But nonetheless, um, 
Mr. Trudeau has made uh, um, the rounds, so to speak, in the, in the world uh, for the last several months. And frankly, he's been um, well covered and, and well regarded. Um, let me ask a very simple question here. In terms of press coverage in the UK, be it print or television, is there much coverage of Prime Minister Trudeau? You ever see anything? Any profiles? Just photographs. Just photographs. Okay. Okay. But it, I'm not suggesting that he has a 15-minute, you know, dedicated profile. There's more. Yeah. Oh yeah. The BBC went live for an hour on on when he um, the refugees arrived in Canada. They were live on that for an hour, and um, and within the BBC as well. I mean, he's sort of the media darling, so. There's loads of stuff being done on him. His first official visit abroad was to Canada House, and so there was right. also a clip on the late night news where he did an interview and walked around St. James Park. And I saw the number of individuals who were at Canada House. It was uh, striking to me, you know, um, and good for a variety of reasons. So what has happened in Canada under Justin Trudeau in a very brief period of time? What has his government... He was sworn in as was his government on the 4th of November. What have they tackled in their first 100 days on the job? Well, as you might expect, the focus of the Prime Minister's energies had been expended on moving to implement um, a variety of campaign promises. Now, some of these have been accomplished because it's fair to say it, they could be accomplished reasonably quickly. The majority of others are underway and you're going to hear a lot more, and I would encourage you to um, pick up your papers on the 23rd of March, because on the 22nd of March, it will be the first federal budget announced. And there's some, a variety of initiatives that were promised during the campaign um, that we anticipate hearing about. So, um, according to one so-called nonpartisan citizen-driven citizen Canadian-based website, um, trudeometer.ca. Mr. Trudeau offered no less than 214 policy promises during the campaign. So it's a significant number. Um, so how did he fare out during his first 100 days? Did he do all 214? Well, no. If you actually go back and you take a look at the record they've compiled, they say he's only actually delivered on 13, so he still has 201 to go. Um, but he's also started work on 29 more. Um, but what we do know this evening is this. Um, and I, I think this is a, a tremendously important um, step forward. And some might argue it's um, uh, more cosmetic than it is substantive. But nonetheless, I think it's an important step forward. And that is that he promised and he in fact compiled and set forth an ethnically diverse and gender balanced cabinet. Um, some of you may have seen why and how he responded to that. Does anybody recall when he was asked why he did it? What did he say? Be yeah, because it's yeah, because it's 2015. And that's not only the right answer, it's, it's the right answer. Um, which is to say, um, um, Canada, is an ethnically diverse country, and women, as well as men, need to be represented in their entirety. 
Um, so that was nice to see, to say the least. Um, and recently when he was down in Washington, he brought a wide variety of cabinet ministers with him, men and women alike, um, representing Canada in its full diversity. Um, he also agreed to launch a national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada. As some of you may know, this was an issue that the former government was unwilling to touch and to take any kind of significant action on. There's a long, particular parts of Canada, particular provinces, British Columbia, for example, um, parts of Alberta, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and other areas uh, have a startling number of Aboriginal women um, who have effectively disappeared or have been found but ultimately murdered. Um, and uh, there's been, up until this point, nothing done about it. What Mr. Trudeau has done as a first step is put a consultation process in place to determine how best to conduct the inquiry. In fact, what he's doing is he's spending a lot of time um, consulting uh, with First Nations across Canada, and particularly First Nations women's groups. Um, other important things that you may have heard was Canada, under Mr. Trudeau, promised and in fact has moved forward to withdraw Canadian jet fighters from offensive missions in Syria and Iraq. Instead, committing those funds and additional funds to humanitarian aid and to triple the level of military support to train Iraqi ground forces. Perhaps the most notable item, and certainly the one that I think got the most press over the last few months, was the acceptance and expedited processing of 25,000 Syrian refugees. Now, initially the target date for that was the 31st of December, but it was actually effectively accomplished by the close of February of this year. What you need to know is that 15,000 of those refugees are government assisted, the remaining 10,000 are privately assisted or sponsored. The goal of the Trudeau government, however, is to bring in another 10,000 government assisted refugees by the close of this calendar year. One of the other footnotes or one of the other platforms of the Liberal Party that Mr. Trudeau has taken action on is he's in, put into effect in December, a moderately lower income tax rate for middle-class folks um, in Canada, uh, which is uh, welcome. Another step in terms of the first 100 days is he's introduced new rules for environmental assessments of resource-based projects. In other words, if you want to move forward and you want to construct a pipeline and you want to build it from A to B, um, there's a need in the regulatory process to have extensive consultations with First Nations peoples and to be able to demonstrate that as far as uh, potential emissions um, go and potential spillage, um, that there's remediation efforts and remediation plans in place. Interestingly, Mr. Trudeau also indicated, unlike Mr. Trump, um, which is maybe a good thing, um, a commitment to sign the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and one thing that is really delightful for anybody who works in the Canadian public service is the reinvigoration and removal of political interference and micromanagement from the Prime Minister's office um, for the Canadian public service. Now this is not simply, this involves um, not just civil servants, but it involves and creeps down to everyone um, who's involved uh, in 
what we call canon. For example, there's a number of people here in the room who are academics and who have an interest in what we generically have called for years Canadian studies in the world. And I think a number of you know that in May of 2012, the program that supported that, it was called Understanding Canada, was terminated by the Government of Canada. And it was a program that made a tremendous amount of good, and I'm not quite sure why it was um, ixnayed, so to speak. I do want to bring to your attention a statement by Stéphane Dion. You may have heard this. It was in the Canadian House of Commons not long ago, about three weeks ago, in a question um, Mr. Dion said the following. I find it appalling that cultural diplomacy was dismantled by the previous government. We are trying to rebuild it. It won't be done overnight. We are taking it one step at a time. Did it make any sense to withdraw funding supporting Canadian studies abroad? Do we not want people around the world to be interested in us, to study us? Would we want our artists to receive help wherever they go? Do we want to share with the world the varied French expressions unique to our country? Of course we do. We will do it. We will build that capacity step by step. That is one of Prime Minister Trudeau's and our government's election promises. So everybody will look at that budget on the 23rd of March. See now if, in fact, uh, there'll be some support for what we do in the world of academia and Canadian studies. Um, I'd like to think there will be. Um, the Prime Minister himself, when speaking to his first 100 days, and I'm going to just read you a brief excerpt from the statement he issued that day, he said, when we were elected, we promised real change to improve the lives of Canadians. Change based on what people from coast to coast to coast have told us they want. After the first hundred days, I'm proud of the progress we've made towards that goal. And then he goes through a series of things. And he says, in November, I was extremely proud to introduce our gender balanced cabinet. We know our country is enriched and our government is more effective when decision makers represent Canada's rich diversity. Our government also began the important consultations to design a framework for an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Indigenous communities demand answers and they deserve justice. Together, we've demonstrated global leadership by welcoming thousands of Syrian refugees into our homes and our communities. And he goes on from there talking about various things, even bringing back the long-form census, um, which is actually a smart idea for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but when you look at this, it's fascinating if you go back and I would ask you to, you know, go and take a look at public opinion polling for both the Prime Minister's approval rating as well as the Liberal Party of Canada's rating. Where do they rank? Do people still like them after a short period of time? And what you'd find um, is that, yes, Prime Minister Trudeau's approval rating, um, I'll be quite interested to see the next poll that's taken particularly given this um, recent trip to Washington, D.C., but has been hovering in the low 60%, 60, 61, 62%. Support for the governing Liberals, as one might expect, the election wasn't all that long ago, continues to remain strong. Um, they're 17 to 20 points ahead of the Conservatives and about 30 points ahead of the New Democrats. In part, that's because, as I say, it's a new government, but it's also in part because there's uh, a leadership contest underway um, in both parties, uh, meaning the Conservatives and the New Democrats, not formally but uh, soon to be. 
Um, so if this is, these are some of the hallmarks of his first 100 days in office as prime minister. What are some of the principal issues that Trudeau has and will continue to focus on? Um, the 100-day mark was February 12th, by the way. Um, and what, are, what key realities will most likely have a direct impact on his ability to secure those objectives? Well, let me, if I can, take a few moments to talk about some of the more significant issues confronting Mr. Trudeau. <clears throat> You know, sometimes you come as a political leader, um, you campaign on a variety of pledges, if you will. You get there, and uh, whether it's a prime ministership or a presidency, and for reasons in some way beyond your control, circumstances change. Well, some of the circumstances have clearly changed since Mr. Trudeau began his run and was elected as prime minister. Um, the performance and status of the Canadian economy is one thing that's very clear. Uh, Canada's unemployment rate is now 7.3%. Um, it's significant. It's uh, significantly higher, in, particularly in um, uh, parts of Alberta. Um, not so much in the Calgary, or not so much in the Edmonton area, but certainly in the Calgary, Fort McMurray area, the resource area, in Newfoundland, which I want to come back to shortly. Um, they're in, in significant difficulties in, in, in Newfoundland. Um, the size of the projected uh, deficit, um, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the budget has to say on this next week because that deficit, which was maybe going to be uh, initially a small surplus and then breaking even, um, is projected to be very significant uh, multi-billion dollar deficit that the Trudeau team did not anticipate. Um, and part of the reason for that decline um, in economic performance, that rise in deficit and ultimately debt levels, um, has to do, of course, with the value of commodity prices, most especially oil. Um, if you look at Canada, if you look at some econ if you take a look at the period of 2006 to 2015, sort of January 29th, when Stephen Harper comes in as Prime Minister with a minority government, through to October the 19th of 2015, and you look <coughs> at how Canada's industrial output, which has always been a resource-based economy, but you look at how much more pronounced the oil and gas industry was during that stretch of time, it's not surprising that Canada's um, uh, in the face of declining commodity prices. Um, you know, and this is not a, at least, uh, as one put it, uh, one person put it in the Global Mail the other day, it is an utter and apparently sustained collapse of resource revenues for the Canadian government. For those of you who go to Canada, um, or have been to Canada recently, um, or want to go to Canada, it's probably a good time to go because the Canadian dollar um, has fallen dramatically in value, um, perhaps most dramatically against the United States currency. It was down about a month ago to about 68 and a half cents. And I think uh, the lowest level it had been was around 2002, it was around 62 cents. It's rebounded recently, it's come back up almost to 76, but 
Um, <coughs> it's still a far uh, and, and far off from where it was when Mr. Trudeau was elected. This gives him less room for maneuver. I mentioned provincial realities. Um, because, uh, you know, two provinces in particular, to a certain degree Saskatchewan too, but particularly Alberta and Newfoundland come to mind. Why is that? Well, yes, Alberta has known about, you know, um, their landlocked uh, bitumen oil reserves for years. They've been tapping into it. They've been extracting those resources. Um, and But they've been... That, you know, in the case of Alberta, with this decline, certain things that are obvious in terms of unemployment rates, real estate valuations having gone down. But the truth is that there's a few things that Alberta has done over the years, has a more diversified economy than most people are aware. And secondly, they set up, if you will, um, much like Norway did, uh, much like Alaska did, they set up a rainy day fund back in the 1970s. So there's significant multi-billion dollars sitting there to help out, uh, if you will, think of it as a piggy bank of reserves that the provincial government of Alberta can draw upon to prevent, if you will, significant cuts to public services and to weather this tide uh, of low commodity prices. Newfoundland doesn't, regrettably, have the same story to tell. Newfoundland, as many of you know, found oil in the Atlantic um, in comparative terms, fairly recently, um, and natural gas. And the situation with Newfoundland, to give you an idea, the last three years, Newfoundland has spent on public expenditures, for whether it's for schools or roads or what have you, they've spent 30% more on average than every province and territory in Canada. Unfortunately, um, their economy is not diversified. Fortunately, there were a lot of resources not only coming in because of offshore oil and gas, but because of a lot of um, newfies, quite frankly, who were working, particularly in Alberta, and sending monies back. Um, right now, um, uh, the uh, uh, Newfoundland economy uh, is going to be, particularly in 2016 and into 17, if the value of oil doesn't dramatically increase, it's going to be in for some especially tough times. Um, they're talking, the Premier um, is set to deliver a budget soon and talking in, a, in a, about 20 to 25% cuts in public expenditures across the board. So there remains to be seen. But this is a, a real issue that Mr. Trudeau's having to deal with. For example, Rachel Notley, who's the Premier of um, Alberta, met recently with Prime Minister Trudeau and said, we need your help, what can you do for us? Well, what that's going to do, and it's going to be unveiled in this budget, is he's going to advance, because he's made a commitment during the election, and we're going to hear about it four square on the 22nd of March, um, made a commitment to uh, publicly invest in Canada and its infrastructure. So she's asking for him to move more of that money up front to get things moving in Alberta. Um, and of course, um, the other glaring reality that Mr. Trudeau has to face, there's also key issues that he needs to deal with, right? So, um, and it can go through a long laundry list. I mentioned infrastructure, 
Um, during the electoral campaign, he pledged to kick in $5 billion a year for three years. Now we're hearing significantly more. Um, he, he's proven, um, at least in his statements to date, and we'll see if the rubber meets the road in this budget, he's essentially um, doesn't seem to be concerned about running sizable deficits uh, uh, to get the economy up and running in, in the way it should be. So that's quite interesting. Federal-provincial cooperation, which is a huge deal in Canada, right? And, um, well, it wasn't the last 10 years, but now it's going back to, I suppose, a little bit more of a, uh, a meeting of equals. Um, there was a meeting, as many of you know, in Vancouver recently. Mr. Trudeau was pushing unsuccessfully at this point to come up with a national carbon policy, pricing policy. Um, he, he encountered some opposition, particularly from... Uh, the Premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, um, because Mr. Wall wanted to focus his attention on other things related to hydrocarbons as opposed to coming up with a carbon pricing policy for the country. Um, so there's going to be issues that he'll need to resolve. Um, and, you know, I suppose if anybody can resolve them, it'll be Mr. Trudeau, because if he looks at his father's history uh, in terms of interprovincial or federal-provincial relations, um, he'll see that uh, there's a lot of uh, positive lessons he can draw upon from those experiences. So, um, so will this budget coming up be a massive first aid kit for Canada's resource-producing regions? Well, I think regardless of the precise focus, um, which I think, however you choose to slice it, will undoubtedly have a very large commitment to public infrastructure initiatives. The truth is the government's ability to address Canada's needs will be challenging. Um, it's clearly early days, and no one knows for certain what the defining issues of Prime Minister Trudeau's tenure will be. I mean, you can go back in history for those of you um, who are familiar or old enough to know this, you just go back and look at various um, Prime Ministers, you can go back to look at Brian Mulroney. Um, it was nearly a year after he was in office before he announced his intention to negotiate what would then be the world's largest bilateral trade agreement with the United States, the Canada-US Free Trade Agreement. For Jean Chrétien, who came into power in 1993, um, if you look at some of the hallmarks and some of the key pieces, uh, key initiatives that he championed, um, some of them in the area of human security, such as the formation of the Mine Ban Treaty, such as the formation and establishment of the International Criminal Court, that doesn't come for some time. And in fact, his perhaps most notable legacy is the fact that with the assistance of Paul Martin as Minister of Finance, Canada's finances were just glowing. In fact, when Mr. Chrétien stepped down, he stepped down that year, Canada had $25 billion surplus. You know, so it's, it's quite fascinating. And perhaps most instructive for Justin Trudeau will be to look at his father. Because here's Mr. Trudeau Sr. Comes in, elected in 1968. But his signature issue, his signature moment, wouldn't come until 1982, some 14 years after first being elected as prime minister with the repatriation of the Canadian Constitution. So who knows? Um, having said that, 
Mr. Churo's brief period so far as Prime Minister has nevertheless provided us, I think, with an important window, a window that tells us what some of his most personal pressing concerns are, and that of the Liberal government. I, I want to suggest there are three very consistently firm issues that he pays attention to. Um, number one, youth. Youth. He is very dedicated to questions of youth, however you choose to slice that, if you will. The second is Aboriginal issues. And the third is clean energy technology. And some folks are suggesting that we're going to hear quite a bit about these themes on March of 22nd. What we also know is that it becomes clear early in a Prime Minister's tenure about their style of leadership, approach to governance, character, if you will. Um, and I think it's fair to say in closing, and I'll be pleased to take and entertain your observations and inquiries, is that Trudeau is not, it's a very different style of governance from his predecessor. <coughs> Where Mr. Harper, uh, with all due respect, was not especially transparent and not especially consultative and you know, relied on one or two key individuals from time to time. Um, Mr. Trudeau's shown himself so far to be a team captain. He's not a one-man team, if you will. Um, he believes that bureaucracy matters. He believes that Canadians matter. He's <coughs> certainly um, also, <coughs> some will say, decidedly pragmatic because he's had lots of meetings with lots of people and everybody will come in and he'll be well-versed on the subject or on the issue and they'll come away saying, oh, but there's no decision made. Well, what we're finding is that he's taking his time before assessing any kind of challenges and operating any kind of, uh, and making any kind of key decisions and committing the government of Canada that way. So it's early days, but I think we've seen, if you look at what Mr. Trudeau has promised to do, what he's begun to tackle, and where he's most likely to proceed and what those <coughs> challenges are, um, I think we've got a sense of where he's going. So, thank you very much.